Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You may be seated. All right. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we ask you today as a church, as a community, uh, we collectively ask you, Lord, would you open our eyes that we might behold your glory? Would you open our ears that we might hear your word? Would you open our hearts that we might believe and, Lord, in believing, be transformed by you? And Lord, would that work itself out through the work of our hands in all things that we do in life that you might be glorified? This is our prayer as we come to your word today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a brand new book uh, by an author named Will Storr. Uh, it's called The Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. The Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. In this book, he's basically making the point that all of life is a status game. And everyone is trying to win. And he says the way to develop a winning formula in life is to acquire status. Status is this comparative ranking uh, where it ranks your prominence and your importance based on a ton of factors wherever you live. Now, he says humans are obviously motivated by things other than status, and we know that, but his argument is if you take all of the things that people want, and in his book he lists money and sex and power and making the world a better place, he says if you take all of the things that human beings want in life, the best way to get them is status. He argues that status is the way to get what you want. Now, he's not a fool, so he says this is also a pretty depressing way to live. <laughs> he acknowledges that. That doesn't mean it makes it untrue. He just acknowledges that it's a fairly depressing view of the world. Now, he quotes a psychology professor who says, We naturally pursue status with ferocity. We all relentlessly, if unconsciously, try to raise our own standing by impressing peers and naturally, if unconsciously, elevate others in terms of their standing. Okay, Christ City, this is the water we're swimming in here in Vancouver. This is the world we live in. Now, Will Storr, who wrote the book, is not a Christian, so, so don't you know, buy the book and expect him to tell you that the, the, the way through this is to humble yourself, you know, uh, give yourself to the way of Jesus, live for the love of God, live for the love of your neighbor. But if he is right, and the broader cultural worldview thinks that life is a game, 
That means that most people who live around us, and I would dare say some of us here today, right now, are asking the question, how do I win? It's a question. He says the way to win the game in whatever arena you're playing it in is to elevate your personal status. He calls status the golden key that unlocks your dreams. If that's true, then we need to realize something. Okay, This, this whole idea is forming a comprehensive worldview. Saying if this is what you want, then this is how you get it and you aim for it. You identify a goal, you make a plan, and then you go achieve your plan. If you think life is a game and the way that you win and get what you want out of life is elevating your status, then you need to realize that is actually going to shape the way you treat people. It's going to shape the way that you relate to all of creation around us. It's going to to shape the way that you relate to God. And this is a brand new book, just published in September of this year, about a very old problem. And I want you to hear me. It happens to be a very Corinthian problem. It's a very Corinthian problem. And here we are studying 1 Corinthians together. See, the problem that the church of Corinth is dealing with is that the church looks a lot like the city around it. Looks a lot like the city around it in the way they're treating each other, the way they're doing business, the way they're handling ethics, the way they're relating to God. And I don't mean the good way of looking a lot like the church, the city around us, meaning we're a a diverse cross-section of the community that we're a part of in the larger scope of the city of Vancouver. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that the city is wild. And so is the church. Corinth is a wild city, and Paul's letter to the church in Corinth says the church is a little bit more like the city than it perhaps should be. Here was one of the problems. The church was allowing their Corinthian culture and worldview to dominate the way they interacted with the gospel rather than allowing the gospel to reorient and refocus the way they interacted with the world. I want to say it again because it's the foundational thing I want to get at. The church was allowing their Corinthian culture and worldview to dominate the way they interacted with the gospel rather than allowing the gospel to reorient and refocus the way they interacted with the world. And if you think that has nothing to do with you today, then God bless. The Corinthian problem is the Vancouver problem. That's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. Okay, I want us to have all of that in mind as we look at the text today. We're going to look at it like this. I want to talk about unlearning. I want to talk about reorienting. And I want to talk about refocusing. Three things. Unlearning, right? We need to identify the, the worldly values that cause us to compromise the gospel. I want to unlearn them together. Unlearning. Second, we're going to look at reorienting. So what, what we need is a right-side-up gospel in an upside-down world. We need to figure out how we can come at that. We live in an upside-down world with a right-side-up gospel. How do we reorient our view of how we interact with the city around us? And third, refocusing. We need to make sure that the target we are aiming at is what it should be. Because I know you. You're good at life, which means you're going to achieve your goals. Is your goal right? That's the question I want to look at. 
Unlearning, reorienting, and refocusing. Unlearning first, verse 22, look at it with me. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Right here in the very first half of the first sentence we're looking at together as a group here, we have three ideas of how to make our way to God. The first two are prominent cultural means of approaching God, and the third is what Paul calls the word of the cross. To be clear with where I'm going, we need to unlearn the first two, and we need to allow the third one to reorient and refocus our lives. We need to unlearn the first two. We need to reorient and refocus our lives around the third, the word of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. So Paul says Jews demand signs. Okay? We see this in all four Gospels. The Jews who did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was would hear him preach the message of the kingdom, or they would see him love people they did not think that he should be loving, and then they would come to him and they would say some version of, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What you need to know is, that was not coming from a place of like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was coming from a place of dance for us, and we'll see if you're the real deal. It was not coming from a place of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It was coming from a place of trying to tell God how he could show up in their life in a way that they approved of on their own terms. They wanted God to meet all of their expectations and all of their pre-existing criteria of what he would be like by providing irrefutable, tangible proof that was basically so strong it required no faith. Dance for us, Jesus. They wanted evidence. And a crucified Christ was the opposite of what they expected and a total contradiction to what they believed the Christ was going to be like. See, the Jews were looking for a Messiah or a Christ who would come and fit those pre-existing categories and take over in a military kind of way. They were not looking for a Messiah who would come and suffer and be hung on a cross in shame and then die. They were looking for a mighty deliverer, not a weak man who let the Romans put him to death. Jesus did not fit the mold for the evidence the Jews wanted and the kind of savior they were looking for. The kind of savior they wanted would come and wield power. The problem is their definition of power was not God's definition of power. Next in the text, it says, the Greeks seek wisdom. This was such a cultural assumption, a culturally assumed truth that Paul does not need to back it up with any explanation because the Corinthians are well aware of what he is talking about. Now, the Bible is not down on wisdom. God is not down on wisdom. Paul, who wrote this letter, is not down on wisdom. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, wisdom is the term used to describe skillful living that is aligned with the will and the ways of God. Wisdom's a good thing. The problem is, This wasn't the same kind of wisdom the Greeks were looking for. 
Okay, Stephen Um, he wrote this. He said, when they thought of wisdom, they were primarily concerned with gaining intellectual knowledge that could be leveraged for the purpose of attaining influence and power. Wisdom was then viewed as a tool for self-gain. Wisdom was a means to a particular end. That means the Greek person was looking for a leader who was sort of the archetypal wise man, the, the philosopher, the leader who possessed wisdom. The problem is their definition of wisdom was not God's definition of wisdom. Okay, look back at the text, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. All right. The crucified Christ that Paul is preaching is a stumbling block, or more literally, a scandal to the Jews because they could not conceive of a Christ who would die in weakness and who was anything but powerful. They couldn't get it in their head because it didn't fit their expectation. The crucified Christ that Paul is preaching is folly or more literally foolishness or madness to the Greeks. Because they could not conceive of a world where something as embarrassing and shameful as crucifixion would lead to salvation. You could not worship someone who was crucified. It's undignified. It doesn't have the polish of wisdom. Here's what I want us to realize. These two very prominent human-centered worldviews of power and wisdom are basically the same today in Vancouver as they were then in Corinth. In Corinth, aligning yourself with a community of people who embrace scandal and madness, it's not good for your public image. In Corinth, aligning yourself with someone who believes in and has staked their whole life upon the scandal of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it's not good for your social status ladder-climbing life. Just think about it. I said the book that Will Storr published last month argues that status is the way to get what you want. Okay, the Corinthians knew that status was the way to get what, you're want, what you want, and, and power and wisdom are the means to gain that status. Are you tracking with it? Let me ask you, what happens then when you become a Christian and you've got to forsake those tools, those means that will give you worldly status? What happens when you need to kind of turn your back on those and embrace the scandal and the humiliation and the madness and the craziness of the fact that the crucified Lord is the ruler of the world? What happens? How do you embrace something that other people think is utter foolishness? Okay, again, it's not limited to the people who lived in ancient Corinth. It's not limited to the Jews and the Greeks. They become pictures of the way that all of us approach God with our pre-existing ideas of what he should do and who he should be. So inasmuch as this is impacting us, we need to unlearn this way of thinking that leads us to be devoted to the things that the world values as markers of status. How are we unlearning? 
some of the things that we just think are normal. So let me ask you, what are the things we need to unlearn in Vancouver? What are the things we need to align ourselves with? What are the things we like to align ourselves with in our public personas that are simply better than aligning ourselves with the scandal and the madness of the cross? Where are we trying to look powerful and wise rather than embracing the fundamental weakness and craziness of God's plan of salvation that comes to us through a crucified Savior? Where are we posturing ourselves to look a particular way to fit in? Christ City, we want to fit in so bad. What if God's called you to stand out? As we examine our lives as disciples of Jesus, we need to be aware that unlearning worldly patterns of thinking is sometimes the most important first step of having our lives transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need to unlearn some things so we can be open to the way that God wants to shape us in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Unlearning. Secondly, reorienting. Reorienting. A few weeks before Paul the Apostle arrived in Corinth for the first time, he was preaching the gospel in a city about 600 kilometers to the north called Thessalonica. And when he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, it just so turns out that he was pretty successful. Things went well. They went so well that people started to hate them, which is always a good sign that you're doing something, right? The community around them started to get really, really upset because the preaching of the gospel was altering the landscape of the religious worldviews of the people in Thessalonica. The, the effective preaching of the gospel led to an uproar, and what the voices of the mob in the uproar said, they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The, the men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What I love is that the accusation is from people who are living apart from God and they assume that they are living right side up and that the word of the cross being proclaimed is turning the world upside down. But we know it's the other way around, isn't it? We live in an upside down world that needs a right side up gospel. And I want you to hear me really clearly. This is not a problem with the world, okay? We expect the world to value worldly power and worldly wisdom and worldly systems of status and worldly definitions of success. We expect that. The problem comes when you can't distinguish between the culture of the city and the culture of the church. Don't forget, this is a letter being written to a church. So here's what was going on in the church in Corinth that meant they needed some reorientation. The church was allowing their Corinthian culture and worldview to dominate the way that they interacted with the gospel rather than allowing the gospel to reorient the way they interacted with the world. Look at the text again, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That means the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of humans. 
And the weakness of God is stronger than all the strength of humanity. In Corinth, the way to success was a higher status. And you can get that higher status by aligning your life with worldly definitions of wisdom and worldly definitions of power. But in Christ, the way to success is to align yourself with the truth of the gospel, which thinks the world is upside down. In Corinth, the scandal and the madness of the cross was embarrassing to be associated with. And if you wanted status and success in the city, you just need to play their game. Fit in. But in Christ, the scandal and the madness of the cross is true power and true wisdom. Why? Because Jesus is the power of God and Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and lordship over all things defines the power of God. Jesus' life and death and resurrection and lordship defines the wisdom of God. The cross, universally despised by all of those who have not been saved by it, The cross reorients our wisdom because the cross says we can't think or learn ourselves out of the problems that we were in, right? The cross says we couldn't save ourselves through new and better ideas. Like we don't need new and better ideas. We needed a substitute to solve our problem and our alienation from God. The cross reorients us away from worldly wisdom toward the sufficiency of the salvation offered in Christ. Okay? The cross reorients our view of power. Because the cross says true power looks like laying your life down in love, not like ruling with tyrannical oppression. We couldn't save ourselves through military victory or ruling. No, Jesus redefines power when he willingly lays down his life for the sake of others. The cross reorients wisdom. The cross reorients power. In an upside-down world, we need a right-side-up gospel. We need a gospel that reorients our cultural assumptions of how we can make it in this world. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not a moron. I know I'm sitting in a room full of very worldly successful people. In terms of worldly success, our church is crushing it. I happen to think you're also godly and you're doing it in a wonderful way. I'm not trying to say, just give up, go live on a commune somewhere and hope that you can find wisdom and power in Christ. What I'm saying is the way you go about your success and achieving your goals needs to be aligned with the will and the ways of God. And that if it isn't aligned with the will and the ways of God, you need to unlearn some things and reorient your life from the upside-down world you live in with the right-side-up gospel. I think there's a way to do this where it honors God. I also know there's a way to pursue success that is purely worldly. See, Christ City, we as a church need to be aware of this. If we're going to be the body of Christ, the church of Jesus, which we are, 
we as a church cannot achieve success by worldly means. Okay? A, a woman that Allison and I know, Allison's my wife, uh, a woman that we know was here and she walked in front of our, our church building. She's not a follower of Jesus. She's a lovely lady, not a follower of Jesus. Walked in front of the church building, saw the sign out front. It says Christ City Church. And because she loves us, because she really loves Allison, she wants Allison to succeed in this world, she said, I have a thought for you. And Allison said, great. And she said, if you just took Christ out of the name of your church, I think more people would want to come. <laughs> and because her intent was beautiful and she cares about us, th that was nice and it was kind. It's just entirely the way the world thinks about things. If you just take Jesus out of all your stuff, you'd probably succeed a little better. Okay, right here in this moment in the sermon. Okay, I'm not doing this. There's about a 75-minute rant on the way the church has done this in Vancouver. I'm not going to do it. I just want you to know that it's in my heart. <laughs> All right. I feel, I feel way better just telling you that. Honestly, I feel like it just resolved a lot inside my own heart. We live in an upside-down world, and we need to have our perspective reoriented by the power of the right-side-up gospel. Okay? This reorienting is what I call counter-formational discipleship. It's intentionally allowing your orientation of reality to be aligned with God even when it costs you. It's intentionally paying attention to the other gospels that are being preached in our city, the counterfeit gospels of success and status and power and wisdom. It's noticing them. It's hearing them when they're proclaimed as the message that you should believe and live according to, and then working in a counterformational way to make sure that that is not now forming you into being more of a citizen of Vancouver than a citizen of heaven. If you don't know that the world you're living in is currently shaping you and forming you in the way that you think and live, it can sneak up on you, and sometimes it sneaks up on you and it grabs a hold of you and it's too late. There's a lot of gospels being proclaimed in our city. Do we know which ones to reject? Um, when we were in Bible college in Alberta, um, I knew a guy who at the time was part of our church, and he owned several used car dealerships. You already know where this is going. In the church, he was, he was a straight-up guy. He was super generous. He went out of his way to love people and care for people. Uh, he loved his wife. He loved his kids, and he was discipling them in Christ. He was a student of the Scriptures. But when I talked to him about his work, he set all of that aside, and he said, you can't make it in this industry unless you play by their rules. What he was basically saying is, I didn't make the rules of the upside-down world I live in. I just have to play by those rules if I want to win. He's believed a different gospel. He has set a goal, and he is doing whatever it takes to achieve that goal, but what if that goal is wrong? See, it wasn't long before he then had that compromise working itself out in his life, but it, but it wasn't long from then until it led to like a hundred other little compromises. And eventually, he was cooking his books, he was stealing from his investors, and he was ruining his reputation. 
Now, by God's grace, he rectified those things. And he owned it, and it was very painful and costly for him to do it. But God's grace is sufficient. He just needed a reorienting so that living in an upside-down world, he didn't just say to himself, I guess I can live in an upside-down way. I knew a totally different guy in a totally different industry who got a job offer he couldn't refuse. You've heard this. I've never, I've never been offered one. <laughs> a job offer he couldn't refuse, which it meant moving his family away, working long hours in a new city, uprooting all of them from being established in their schools, the great church community that they were in. In his words, this is just the way it works if you want to advance in this industry. No problem. About a year after they were there, not getting connected to a new church, not building any meaningful relationships, and all of them being miserable, they moved back to where they were from, they rejoined the school, they rejoined the church community, and they started hanging out with all the same people, and they were happy again. And they felt like they were flourishing in Christ again, more importantly. Now, am I saying that you can never work in an industry with some shady folks or that you can never uproot and move to a new place? Okay, I've done both. I've done both. I'm not arguing that, boy, whatever chair you're on right here, you better be in in 50 years. Okay, that's awesome. But if God calls you to move, make sure it's God calling you to move. Make sure it's not a worldly-based decision on how you can gain power and wisdom and thereby advance yourself in the status game of life. Am I saying that you cannot work in an industry where it's a bit shady or that you cannot uproot your family and move somewhere else? No, I'm saying if you follow, if you allow the rules of the status game to set the agenda of how you are going to live, I'm saying to you the upside-down world is going to shipwreck your faith if you, if you aren't paying attention to it. You just have to be willing to reorient yourself toward a counter-formational discipleship that intentionally embraces a cross-shaped way of living that knows the upside-down wisdom of the world is actually foolishness and the upside-down power of the world is actually weak and that the true wisdom and power are only found in the right-side-up world of Jesus. Then you're going to be fine. Climb that ladder of success in the city. Get to the top, but don't lose your soul on the way. You can do it. So if we need to unlearn some things and we want to reorient some things, the question is, how do we do it? Okay, third point, refocusing. We've talked already about unlearning and reorienting. Let's look at refocusing. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, Christ City, the refocusing we need is on the simplicity of the cross. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but the word of the cross to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's a distinction being made here in the text between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Okay, don't forget this. This is a letter to the church, right? There's an identity piece to this that we cannot miss. Okay, the distinction 
It takes us all the way back to the reality that we have been called and chosen and saved and redeemed and adopted as children of God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And if you came here today and you don't believe that and you don't think that's your identity, I at the very least right now hope you wish it was. This is the world we're invited to live in. There is a more beautiful way of being human than trying to play the status game. Who, by the way, in the end, no one wins. So, yes, there's unlearning to do. Yes, we live in an upside-down world that needs to be transformed with a right-side-up orienting of the gospel, yes. But the only way we do that is through a clear refocusing on the simplicity of the cross. Simplicity of the cross. The church in Corinth was allowing their Corinthian culture and worldview to dominate the way they interacted with the gospel rather than allowing the gospel to refocus the way they interacted with the world. And let me ask you, what if some of your goals in life, in light of the world we live in, what if they're just wrong? Now, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just asking, have you even asked the question? Last week, someone I know put the wrong destination into the GPS in their vehicle and drove like half an hour in the opposite direction they wanted to go and successfully arrived at the destination they inputted. Okay, that's hilarious. They successfully arrived at the destination that they set as their goal, but the goal was altogether wrong and took them way off track. Do you hear what I'm saying? Have you asked yourself if the goals you have set and the direction your life is moving are in line with the truth of the gospel? I just would hate to sit down with you in 10 or 15 or 20 years and for you to tell me that you crushed it and succeeded at the wrong thing. It's one of my greatest fears is that I'll succeed at the wrong thing. There's a right way to do it. And there's a right goal to set. We just have to allow God to shape us and form us through counter-formational discipleship that we would live lives that ultimately glorify him. We need the word of the cross to refocus our lives. Okay, verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay. Anytime you see a verse of scripture start with the word for, you know that what came before it is very important. You've got to remember it's building off of something. Verse 17 from last week, look at it with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and he's reminding them that when he came to them, when he first arrived there, he did not come with fancy speech like some of the traveling philosophers who were there to gain a following. He came to them in simple language to simply preach the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that in and through Christ's life and death and resurrection and lordship, 
that God is offering them an entirely new way of being human that unites them in relationship to God once and for all and gives them a new way to live now and forevermore. He is reminding them that because of Jesus, he did not come to them in lofty speech, but he came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit that they might be saved, that they might be forgiven their sin, that they would realize that in Christ they have now been knit together into a new community where they get to live out the beauty of the gospel alongside one another. And he's making a huge point here. Paul is saying, I didn't do that with a fancy message. I didn't do that with lofty speech because I did not want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Listen to me, Christ City. The essential characteristic of worldly wisdom is that it will empty the cross of its power. God help us that it's not coming out of our mouths that we would empty the cross of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the preaching of Jesus Christ, this is the center of the whole thing we're doing. And anytime that gets moved out from the center, we just need to unlearn some things. We need to reorient ourselves. Anytime Christ gets moved out of the center, we've got to refocus ourselves. It happens in a thousand minute ways every week. It happens to your preacher. It happens to the leaders around you. All of us have to do this. Let me tell you. Here's one of the downfalls of being a preacher. Okay? The, the simplicity of the cross, right? I don't want to come to you with lofty speech and thereby empty the cross of its power. Okay. This is the second sermon I wrote on this text this week because I want you to love me. By the time I got the first one done, I thought, I suck at this and I should quit. Do you know why I thought that? Because it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. And then I repented of my sin I unlearned the worldly way of thinking. You want to know where the points came from? I reoriented myself from the upside-down world back into the world of the right-side-up gospel. <laughs> and I refocused myself on Jesus. Now, the fact of the matter is, whatever I preach today is going to be the absolute best sermon you hear on this text today. I'm telling you. When Christ gets moved out of the center just a little bit, we just need to refocus and put him back in. So let me ask you the question. In light of the word of the cross, what do you need to unlearn? It's a simple question to take with you. In light of the word of the cross, what do you need to unlearn? In light of the word of the cross, what areas of your life are currently upside down and they just need to be reoriented with the power of the right side up gospel? In light of the word of the cross, what needs to be refocused in your life? You might not have all of the answers to all of these things right now, but sometimes what we need to do is start by asking the right questions. 